You were faster than me. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So but I started the room, but <laughs> so um, it's it's all good. But now you your moderator, which is fine. But um, if you could also make me moderator, so I can add the link to ah. your paper and things like. That. So how you okay. do that is you you click on my profile, and then there mm. is an option on the bottom. Yeah, make a moderator. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Hi, Victoria. How are you? Good morning. Happy to see everybody. Glad to be here. Yeah, meet uh, Giacomo. Um, I hope I'm saying your name right. Um, yeah, yeah. Giacomo, but it's good enough. Okay. Sure. Okay. So I'm just going to say good morning, Dr. Katsapadia. Yeah. But we're calling you um, Giacomo. Yeah, Giacomo is fine. Or can you please say it? Can you please? Can I missed that. I missed the um the tutorial for your name. Sorry, no, for my family name. Yes, can you yes. please? Yeah, Cacciapaglia. Uh huh. Thank you. So I think the way you pronounced what was perfect. Okay. Okay. So yeah, thanks okay. for for doing this and for coming here. Um, it's really nice of you to do that it's a pleasure i hope you'll enjoy it usually people say afterwards they enjoyed it but it could be you know could be that people are just being very nice <laughs> well, let's see i'll try, I'll try to be honest but for now i'm enjoying it so <laughs> that's our goal <laughs> It seems that guests leave happy. Some of them even return. Yes, that's true. That might happen to you in your future. If we're lucky, I should say. Yeah. So how is your morning, everybody? Or afternoon? Good. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm making a lot of assumptions. Yeah. We have an afternoon for Katarina, and then where is your morning, Dr. Kachapalia? Well, I'm towards the end of the day here because I'm in Geneva at the moment. Oh, okay. Oh, beautiful. In Europe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was a full day, so all went well. And it started with a lot of rain, and now we are finally seeing the sun. So that's, that's a good news. Okay, same here. I'm in Oregon. <laughs> so. And Oregon is very early morning. Well, mm. maybe towards the end of the morning. Yeah, it's sort of the end. Mm. I mean, it depends on how late your night was, if it's a very early morning. <laughs> it yeah. could be very early, yes. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's it's late morning. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Is this, can, can I just ask, is this um, uh, archive, um, is this good, this link, or should I share the... Yeah, no, it should be, should be good, yes. Physics. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. I wasn't sure anymore if the paper was um, open source, the, um, the, you know, the peer review. Uh, yeah, uh, it should be. I think it should be. Okay. But, I mean, okay. the version on the archive is the same as the version published. Oh, it is. Okay. Up to yeah. tiny differences. So. Okay. Yeah, then, then we can just leave it. But I guess while talking, I will try to be not too technical. 
guess that's also the scope of the of this event no yeah yeah um mm. so it depends who's here <laughs> which of our members are here to ask questions um so um but since it's here early um i don't think serena and so on will be here they will be listening afterwards to your talk mm -hmm. um so it always depends on you know the members that i hear mm -hmm. how technical the questions will get but yeah, yeah. i think for introduction is good to stay um for a broad audience so people mm -hmm. that listening so that you know anyone that's listening can can follow so yeah that's that's perfect for me yeah Okay, great. Um, yeah, hi um, everyone in the audience. Thank you for coming. We'll uh, start in around eight minutes. Um, so thank you for your patience and we'll start soon. So how's the, is the weather now finally summer? And <laughs> where you are? Um, um is the does the summer vacation start now or later um, no well here in europe maybe later okay okay i think yeah it'll be toward maybe the, the end of well, mid-july typically oh, okay yeah i hear the kids soon soon start <laughs> summer vacation so <laughs> yeah no for for schools yeah uh, i think it already started place high school and middle school Universities, well, we go on a bit more. Victoria wanted to say something. I'm sorry, I interrupted. Oh, no, you know, you didn't interrupt. I was just thinking back of, to when I was last in Geneva. It was a really brief time, and I remember that we found a, re a Mexican restaurant and <laughs> we get burritos. <laughs> um, I don't know why I remembered that, but, you know, certain things stand out, but it was just, it was beautiful. I, I really loved walking around that city. Mm, indeed, it is a very beautiful city and very international indeed. Also, every time I come here, I, I try some new restaurant, new ethnic restaurant from different parts of the world. Exactly. So perhaps that, that Mexican restaurant is still there. Okay. I'll try to look for it. So what is your what are some of your favorites that you've located? Um last time I came we found an Iranian, a Persian restaurant. It was not bad. It's somewhere uh, near the lake. But uh, in Geneva is also the first place where I tried Ethiopian. Oh my gosh. It was a really nice surprise. Isn't that so unique and wonderful? Yeah. And I agree. We have a lot of Ethiopian restaurants near to where I live. Mm -hmm. And it was something I didn't, hadn't tried till I was an adult. And now it's, um, you know, something that just needs to happen regularly. It's so delicious. And the bread is, it's yeah. amazing. So do they serve here sort of traditionally, you know, where mm -hmm. it's all in the center and everybody's using their hands and sharing? Yeah, 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 that's how they do it. So I just served on, on a slice of this bread that I used to roll and collect all the food. 
It's a really nice tradition. Injera. I'm just trying to remember the bread is called injera. It's so soft. Uh, Katarina, have you tried that? She's thinking. Yeah, uh, I have, <laughs> sorry, a friend of mine in school, one of my best friends, she was from Ethiopia. So um, I ate that at her home, like food. Oh, food. that's so special. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic to try homemade food. It is. I had an Ethiopian a housemate from Ethiopia for about a year, mm -hmm. and and it smelled so good in the kitchen. <laughs> but she used the injera in different ways. Um, she, oh, sorry, you had a question? Yeah, yeah. My connection is garbage, so my apologies. I have no idea what's actually going on. Um, but is this paper paywalled? I'm having no. trouble loading it, and I'm not sure if it's because of my no, no, being garbage. Sorry, no, or because this, it's paywalled. No, hi. Um, this is uh, hey. massive gravitons. We're talking about. Is it paywall? Is it behind a paywall on Arvix? That's the question. It's in the chat. I'll just. Are you on a Mac? Oh, are you talking about the paper? Sorry. Is the paper paywalled? That was the question. No, I, I think can't the link, tell if it's because the, my connection no, is garbage yeah. or if it's paywall. It's a it's a archive paper, so it's not paywall. Yeah. Okay, that's so fully free, freely available. Nothing is loading for me. I just switched my SIM and no. like my connection is total garbage, so I can't tell. Yeah, I think the app is also lately having issues and being very slow and unresponsive, so um, I think there's might... a lot of these, these like uh, hidden hallway clubs going on. I think a lot of people are missing from the main hallway, and the app is really slow and glitchy right now. So yeah, I know. Like yeah. uh, the room the other day, you know, didn't have too many people because I don't think people can see the rooms. Like you know, not members of ours that follow us, but um, like other people. They seem to come later on, though. They did. They did show up. I think people might have been bringing, bringing people. So, um, so just yeah. to uh, answer back the question about the paper, I just tried the link that has been shared, and it works fine. So I was able to download the paper on my phone. Thank you for checking. I was just navigating Hello. back to my screen with the microphone. <laughs> oh. We're all over the place. Um, sorry, also it happens that uh, once in a while I can't hear anything, so I don't know if it's a problem with the application or there's nobody saying anything. Okay, well, <laughs> Just checking. Uh, yeah, thanks for saying something. So in that case, sometimes it's helpful to go off of Wi-Fi if if you have that option where you mm. are, and then say, yeah, that suddenly it will happen for me that suddenly everyone is mute. And um, I go off Wi-Fi. It's a typical thing in Clubhouse. Mm. It's just one of the ways that we troubleshoot. <laughs> okay. Sorry. And then, yes, yeah, they were saying there's um, there's a bit of overload in the app right now. Mm -hmm. So it could also just be glitchy for people. But we're going to have a great time anyway.
And the non-science society thing I was I was just saying was that the injera is also used dried and then put in foods. So it was because I had lived with a woman from Ethiopia then I saw that she was she used the injera in, in a lot of different ways, kind of like, you know, like um yeah, just like a grain, just broken up and dried and cracked and then put put in different things that were like curries. So I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. This is going back to the Ethiopian food. I guess. Yes. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yeah. It was just <laughs> this interruption. Um, Wisdom, have you tried Ethiopian food? And good morning, Wisdom, or afternoon. Uh, hey, yeah, um, I have. Um, I lived in New York for a while. I feel like you get a pretty good sampling of things if, you li if you're in New York for long enough. The Katarina would agree. Yeah, that's probably the best thing about New York. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can get anything at any time from anywhere. And r relatively authentic, like mostly pretty authentic, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. I know that, I don't know if it had improved uh, the last years, but. Um, my Japanese friends told me that the t fresh tofu was not as good as in Japan, but I hope somebody was working on that and now it's a little bit better. But, you know, there's like maybe tiny things that are not exactly like they are. Um, but yeah, it's, I think mostly it's pretty good. Hello, doctor. Thanks very much for joining us. Hello, everyone. Hey, Jamie. Good Hello. evening. Hope hi. you're all well. And hi, Denise. Hey, Denise. Welcome. Thank you for coming. Hello, everybody. Oh, my gosh. Pleased is that here. This is luminescent? So interesting. Is that bioluminescence or just a really pretty photo? No, no, you're right. It is bioluminescent uh, algae. Oh, I, I changed love that. that for World Oceans Day was yesterday. Yesterday. So I, I was on theme. Yeah. Plus, it's really pretty. Oh my gosh, it's beautiful. So the photo is—it um, looks like a sunset, and 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 the—it's an ocean scene. Looks like it's a bit of an aerial photo, and then the waves are breaking, and they're outlined by um, illuminated. Yeah, the edges are illuminated, and so it's bioluminescent algae. It's so pretty. That sounds mm, lovely. With blue, the the algae is is sort of a glowing blue and the ocean is dark and the sky is sort of yellow. It's so pretty. That's cool. Mm, Dennis has really beautiful PTRs. Everyone does, of course. <laughs> okay, I think we can start and um, yeah, and then let's get into this amazing work. <laughs> it's so interesting. So welcome everyone to the Science Society. Um, we are very honored to have our guest speaker here today uh, talking about his really amazing work. Uh, Dr. Um, now I forgot. I hope I said it more or less right. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> let me give you a little bit um, of information. He's a senior researcher 
and he works at in theoretical physics, physics, uh, particle phenomenology, and um, and he um, did his um, he went to the University of Pisa, um, and he start he studied physics there, and then his PhD he did um, at the Scuola Normale Superiore. Um, in theoretical physics, and then he did uh, his postdoc, one of his postdocs at Cornell University, and then later at UC Davis. And um, he was also at King's College London um, for a while. And um, yeah, and he um, does really interesting research about. Um, and he will, his talk today will be about if uh, massive gravitons are good dark matter candidates. But before we get into it, usually Victoria asks a few general questions, uh, if that's okay. And then the state. Thank you. Okay, I'm back. I had to go off Wi-Fi myself. <laughs> I was having that difficulty. Thank you, Katarina. And welcome. Uh, Science Society is so happy to have you here, Dr. Kachapalia. And so, yes, I would like to ask you a few questions because it's interesting to learn about people's connections to science. And mm -hmm. yeah, it, it will help to carry us into your presentation um, with a, in a more personal way. So if you can look back through your life, and this can include your childhood, so you choose where, um, if you can recall a moment or an experience that may have provided the spark of curiosity that has developed into your interest in science. Yeah, well, I was not prepared for that question, but <laughs> brings back to some old memories. Uh, first of all, thanks everybody for being here with me. I think it's, yeah, we'll try to have some fun for the next uh, hour or so. Yeah, so what brought me into science? Well, actually, the, I have a very vivid memory that comes, goes back to many years ago when I was really a kid, I think probably five or six, I could barely talk. And uh, one of my aunties, she was studying uh, natural science, so more like biology and, and animals and stuff like that. And I would love to sit in front of her and, and bubbling, trying to repeat what, what she was studying. So chemical formulas and stuff like that. The thing since then, I was, I've been very interested in science. And in fact, I wanted to study natural science when I was a kid, and then I turned into physics when I become a bit more adult. That's all my auntie's fault. <laughs> oh, thank you to your <laughs> we're all we're all grateful and we'll become even more so as we hear your discussion and it's always interesting because you know people people have memory to to when this happened and and it's usually a really special memory and and often a person is involved you know so we, yeah. we share this and i think this is why we're doing science society you know because we want to promote interest and love of science so so thank you and and then can you continue um, and another theme i hear is you know is a shift in in um in concentration or discipline and so i'm curious how that happened and also if you can 
briefly run us through your path from that point up until now to your current research. And thank you so much. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, the switch was really, you know, when I, um, yeah, when I wanted to enroll to university, I found uh, actually, well, maybe the main reason is that I wanted to go to um, to Pisa for the, the Scuola Normale, which is a, one of the excellence centers or institutes in, in Italy. And there they didn't have basically biology, so they only had physics. And at the end, there was that's where my choice went. Also because, well, I loved to, to study physics when I was in, in high school. <laughs> and when I was in, in university, I, actually at the very beginning, I was very interested by experimental physics. So I really liked to put my hands into detectors, experiments, look for particles, you know, going through these pieces of junk that then well reveal the presence of, of these particles that, of course, we cannot see with our eyes. But then I got also fascinated more and more by the theoretical part of it. So really try to ask questions and find answers just by using our imagination and mathematics and pure calculations. And that's basically what brought me to, to who I am right now. I guess that curiosity is really what, well, didn't kill the cat yet, but has been driving me on, on this path. Yeah, curiosity. And, and yeah. I think, um, yeah, the courage to follow that curiosity or the, or the um, you know, mentorship or motivation, encouragement, and, and here you are. So thank you very much for, for taking us along and that um, description of what has brought you here. And at this point, you're welcome to, to uh, launch into your presentation. And then following that, um, I think Katarina might have mentioned that we can have a Q&A if that's okay with you. And mm-hmm. you can just, um, you know, relax and focus on presenting. And it's our um, pleasure to bring people up to the stage and, and uh, moderate the question. So you don't have any of that on your plate. So um, yeah, with that, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Kachapalia, and the mic is yours. Okay, thanks. And well, actually, if you, I mean, if there are questions in the audience also during my presentation, I guess everybody can feel free to interrupt me and ask questions. I think it is for me, it's more fun to have a more interactive presentation more than just me talking for, for a long time. Um, but okay, to drop in the topic, um, so we'll be, well, tell you something about how the results that we obtained for this paper that has been shared. So it's about dark matter. And so maybe before talking about the actual work we did in, in this publication, I want to tell you also a bit more about dark matter. In fact, at the end, it all goes back to curiosity, right? Uh, why do we care so much about dark matter? It's because, well, it's something that we have sort of seen, but not directly. So we have a lot of indirect proof that there is some kind of matter in the universe that is called dark because we cannot see it directly, right? But like I will tell you in a minute, there are really a lot of intriguing indirect probes into the presence of, of this of this kind of well, matter, okay, this mysterious object. And for me, it's, it's an incredible uh, situation because I'm, again, I'm very curious, so I really want to know what, what this dark matter is. So what are the indirect probes that we have? Well, the, actually the oldest one uh, came from uh, observations back in the 30s. 
where people were studying, uh, were starting observing galaxies. So as you know, galaxies uh, are like, well, a disk made of stars, okay? And if the disk is not, uh, well, if you're not looking at the galaxy just from the face so that it looks like a round disk, but really uh, askew so that it looks almost like a, like a line, uh, you can measure the velocity of the stars, how they move around the center of the galaxy. Now, this is also an interesting point because, you know, stars move very fast, but they are so far and the distance are so big that this movement is extremely small at the end. So you cannot really see how fast they move just by measuring their position. But you can use the Doppler effect that is basically a change in the uh, spectrum of the light that they emit to see how fast they go and if they go towards us or against us. Okay. So what people did was to measure all these velocities and what they realized is that if you uh, only take into account the um, mass contained by the stars themselves, then uh, the stars that are very far away uh, towards the edge of the galaxies are going too fast compared to what the speed they should have following uh, the gravitational laws, I mean, the Newtonian gravitational laws. Um, another point that made the puzzle even more interesting is that, well, you can even measure further away from the stars because, in fact, the galaxies are enshrouded into a cloud of gas. So this gas is mostly made of hydrogen. And the gas is also rotating at the same speed as the, as the stars. So you can also, also measure the light emitted by the gas. And because of this uh, Doppler effect, so the change in the frequency of this light, you can also measure the velocity of the gas. Turns out that even gas that is very, very far from the stars goes too fast, right? Compared to what it should do following uh, Newtonian's laws. So one hypothesis was that, well, maybe we cannot see all the mass that is there in the galaxy. So there is a big component which is invisible, and that's what dark matter is supposed to be. Now, okay, this could be, one can think, okay, maybe there are other explanations. We're not measuring things very precisely. At the end, we are talking about very far away objects in the sky. But in fact, later came another measurement that again pointed towards the presence of um, some additional matter in the universe. And this goes to a completely different scale. So before I was talking about galaxies, now we're really talking about the whole universe. Now, as you know, maybe you heard about, there is the cosmic microwave background. So what is this? Well, it's some kind of radiation that is present everywhere in the universe. So in fact, maybe uh, you can imagine, I mean, sometimes you, you, we think about the outer space as being completely empty, in reality it's not empty. There is a radiation that feels really everywhere in the universe. And this radiation, it's something has a very well precise origin. It's actually the light that was trapped in the universe in the very early days when the universe was, well, I should, should say very early seconds because we're really talking about uh, just fractions of a second after the Big Bang. So the universe at the time was basically very compact and it was uh, so dense that light was trapped inside. So it's a bit like, you know, a, a very dense pancake. You cannot really see anything inside. Even if you shoot light, it will stay in there. Well, it's not really, but that's, that's the idea. At some point, the universe was expanding and the density dropped and the pancake suddenly became transparent to light. So all the light that was trapped was suddenly released. And now this light has been traveling freely in the universe, been cooling down because of the expansion of the universe. And we see it now just by pointing a telescope to the sky, directly to the sky. 
Now, why is this interesting for the dark matter story? What's interesting is that uh, if you just look at this radiation and you measure very precisely uh, the frequency, so the temperature of this of this uh, um, this radiation in the sky, what, what people notice is that it's not completely universe. So there are some fluctuations that can be measured. They're extremely tiny. They're really uh, one part in ten thousand. This uh, actually hundred thousand. This is the level we're talking about. But the precision of our instruments is, is such that we can measure these very tiny fluctuations. And if you do a statistical analysis of the distribution of these fluctuations, what we find is that there is a pattern. So basically, it's a bit like there are uh, sound waves that have been trapped again into this, uh, uh, this radiation. It's a bit like you know, sound, waves, sound waves that are frozen into uh, this light that comes from the very, very, very early day of the universe. It's really like a fossil, really. That's the same thing, the same idea. But the fossil is a fluctuation, a, a sound that is trapped in, in light. Okay. Now, from this sound, we can basically listen to it and try to figure out what the universe was made of at the time when light was free, uh, set free. Okay. And um, well, to make the story, the story short, uh, we can basically extract what's the component of different particles that we know in the universe. Turns out that the particles we, we know were made of, protons mostly, only constitute 5% of the total energy that is in the universe. And there is a 25% that is also made of matter, but they are not protons. Okay. So again, what is that? And <laughs> It has to be dark matter because you know it's a kind of matter that doesn't uh, interact with light. We only see it because it has some in gravitational interactions with uh, with the rest of the universe. Okay, so uh, this is to tell you, you know, <laughs> what's very intriguing about dark matter is that we have seen it in quotation mark in very two different two very different systems. So if we look at the whole universe, really as a whole, this is a huge you know, object, the biggest we can we can observe. And also if you look at smaller, much smaller objects like galaxies. There are of course other indications like, you know, if you look at clusters of galaxies, you can also prove that there is that some dark unknown matter in, in the system as well. But we don't have any, we don't know what this is. So it could be anything. The only thing we know for sure is that all the particles we have been measured and we study every day, like in places like the, where I am now, which is CERN in Geneva. So these particles cannot be dark matter. They, can, they cannot fill the universe and account for this 25% budget of the, of the energy. So it has to be something else. Now, uh, this is the one of the biggest questions that uh, is still exciting physicists everywhere in the world. What is this dark matter candidate? And this is the main motivation why we started, I, I basically started working on with my colleagues on the results that are presented in, in this paper. Now, how, how did we get there? So in the title, you, uh, you see that there is the word graviton. So graviton is a, a particle that has gravitational interactions with, um, with the rest of, the, of the, the other particles, only gravitational. Now, this is very intriguing because, like I was telling you before, if you follow the story of dark matter, these kind of new particles, they need to have very, very weak interactions. So they cannot 
interact with light. They cannot interact strongly with any of the standard model. Okay. So uh, what's the weakest force that we have seen in nature? Well, there's gravity. Okay, it might seem counterintuitive because <laughs> we feel gravity every day. We don't feel the other forces, but that's it. If you measure the strength of gravity, it's actually by many, many orders of magnitude weaker than any other force we, 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 have, we have been measuring. So why is this interesting? Because, well, we need a particle that has very weak interactions with the standard model, with photons in particular. And why can that be gravity? So that's the, what drives us to gravitons. Gravitons are particles that interact with the strength of gravity. So they might be maybe in good dark matter candidates. That's the, that's the main idea. Now, it all sounds pretty nice, except that it doesn't work. Why is it that it doesn't work? Well, because you need to produce these particles. Okay. So in order for them to be there in the universe and constitute 25% of the mass of the universe, they need to be produced at some point. If particles have very weak interactions, one way to produce them is the following, you know, while the universe is expanding and cooling down, other particles like, you know, the ones that um, constitute us, like protons, electrons, and, and photons, all of those, they collide with each other. And because of these very small interactions of the, of the gravitons, when two, uh, let's say, ordinary particles like protons collide with each other, they have a very tiny, tiny probability to produce some gravitons, okay? Now, this probability is very tiny. And what happens is that once you produce them, as there is no other graviton around and uh, they interact very, very weakly, they will just stream freely into the universe and, and remain there, okay? So you have a mechanism of producing a tiny, tiny amount of these particles during the evolution of the universe. Now, the good thing is that the universe has been around for a very long time. Like we know that the age of the universe is in the billions of years. So there is a lot of time that can be used for these particles to be produced. So you produce them little by little and they get accumulated right until today. And today what we see as dark matter could be you know, the leftover of this production of gravitons. Okay, little by little, they accumulate at the end of the day. They are 25% of the total mass of the universe. Does it work? Well, no. Unfortunately, the interactions are way too weak. So uh, this has been calculated before and people realized that indeed this is not the case. You can produce gravitons, but the number of them will be extremely small. So not even a fraction of the 25% that we would need to, to, for them to constitute a dark matter candidate. <clears throat> yeah, sorry. Right, so this seems to be completely hopeless, right? So where does our work come in? We come in at this point because um, we realized one thing that is um, that was never observed before. So we recalculated the probability for this new so these gravitons to be produced. And one thing we realized is that being gravi gravitons, or having gravitational interactions, they actually interact with mass, right? I mean, this is what we learn in school when we study Newtonian laws. The, the, the laws of gravity are always related to mass, so mass interacts gravitationally. 
But this is not completely true because Einstein later came and told us, well, even energy interacts with gravity. But still, mass is what gives a boost to the interaction of uh, gravity with, with matter. And <clears throat> where is mass coming from? That's the question we asked. Well, as you, uh, as you might know, the Higgs boson has been discovered here in Geneva about 10 years ago. And uh, this new particle is actually uh, called, you know, the, the particle that gives mass to particles, to other particles. In fact, what happens is that um, if the Higgs boson is not around, uh, all the particles in the standard model should be massless, okay? And it's the Higgs boson itself that by, uh, well, some technical means, that means by having a, a non-zero value in the vacuum, it can give mass to, to most of the particles of the standard model. Now, what happens is that during the evolution of the universe, when the universe is very dense and very hot, the Higgs is not in the phase where it breaks, well, where it gives mass to the, to the standard model particles. So there is a sort of transition between two phases, one very high temperature when the universe is very hot and dense, where the Higgs is not giving mass to anybody. It's still there, but it's not doing its job. At some point, at temperatures that are very high, but still, you know, not as high as, we are not as close to as the Big Bang, uh, the Higgs switches phase, and then it starts doing its job. So it's a really bit like this. This is a change in the dynamics of the, of the Higgs itself. Now, when this happens, the interaction of gravitons to uh, the standard particles is increased by the presence of the mass. And uh, by doing an explicit calculation, we realize that this increase can amount to many order of magnitude, can be even... Uh, um, if I remember well, six or seven orders of magnitude in the production rate of, the, of these new gravitons. Okay, so knowing this, we repeated the calculation of how many gravitons we would expect to see today if you know they're produced via these gravitational interactions. And we realized that if the gravitons have a mass around uh, two mega electron volt, which is about the mass of a few electrons, three or four electrons, uh, then we can obtain the correct relic density today just by using gravitational interactions, okay? And this is all due to this uh, uh, increased production after the Higgs starts doing its job. Now, this is also interesting for uh, a more technical reason, you know, I've been talking a lot about the evolution of the universe, right, from the Big Bang, to down to today. But in fact, uh, the theories of particles, so the, the theory of particle that we know and that we've been testing a lot in experiment only reaches up to about the uh, temperature or the energies where the Higgs is doing its job. Okay, this is about 100 GeV, uh, giga electron volt. Above this scale, we know very little. So there might be some new dynamics, some um, completely different physics that we haven't discovered yet, okay? So I'm <clears throat> bringing this out to tell you that we know how the universe has been evolving. We can tell for sure, because we know the physics, up to about the energy where the Higgs becomes active. Above that scale, we don't know, we're not sure, because we don't have any direct measurements there, nor any direct constraint. So our discovery, what we found about this announcement, also tells us that 
the production of this dark matter is only happening in the time, okay, in the more recent time, where we can control the physics very well. So there are no unknowns that can sort of make the prediction a bit weaker. Okay. Um, yeah. Now, there is another point I wanted to touch on upon is, well, now that we know that these massive gravitons can do the job of the dark matter, we need to ask another question. What are they? Okay, what are these gravitons? Well, a graviton in general is uh, like the photon. So the photon is the particle that mediates electromagnetic interaction. They're basically what uh, produce uh, magnetic and electromagnetic phenomena, like, you know, light bulb, of course, emits photons. Gravitons are particles that are emitted by uh, any object that interacts gravitational with another one. Okay, so they are the mediators of gravitational interactions. Now, being so, they cannot be massive. Okay, so the massive gravitons I'm talking about, they're certainly not mediators of gravitational interactions. So there need to be some additional particles that are sort of related to gravity, but they're not exactly the mediators of gravity. There are some uh, cousins of the mediators of gravity that acquire mass because of some special mechanism, okay? Now, before <laughs> concluding and ask, um, leaving space to the questions, I want to give an example of how this could happen because I think it's, it's quite intriguing. The idea is to use extra dimensions. So, um, as, as you know, as you can see with your own eyes, we live in a three-dimensional world. Einstein told us that time is a four-dimension. So, in reality, we live in a four-dimensional world. So when I talk about extra dimensions, I'm really thinking that maybe there is a fifth dimension that can be of the space type that we don't see because it's extremely small, okay? Or for some reason, it's inaccessible. So where do the gravitons enter the game? Well, they enter because, you know, maybe there is the possibility that me, so I'm, I'm made of particles like protons, electrons, I cannot feel the extra dimension because I'm basically localized on... Uh, a four-dimensional space. In the fifth dimension, I cannot access. Think of a wall, you know, where there are some uh, insects that can only crawl on the wall, they cannot fly. They will spend their whole life on the wall, right? They will never be able to fly through the, through, through the room. Now, this is the picture. So the, the, the wall is a, a four-dimensional space where we live on, so we cannot see the rest of the room. However, gravity can, okay? And when this happens, uh, besides the gravitational interactions, there will also be some um, degrees of freedom that uh, carry some energy in the extra direction. And this energy, at the end, is felt as mass by us that are living on, on the wall. Now, in reality, well, the model we, we have to follow, it's a bit more complicated. It's not a model with a single wall. It's really a model with uh, three walls. So the idea there is that you have, you can imagine having two rooms that are connected, that share one wall between, between them. Uh, us, as poor four-dimensional beings, we live on, on the middle wall, okay? Gravity, on the other hand, propagates in, in, the, whole, in the whole space, okay? So in the, both rooms. And in fact, the only, they are the only particles that can go through the wall where we live. So we feel their presence because they go through our wall, so they, go, so they also interact with us. But again, like we cannot probe directly the, um, the, uh, the space that is beyond the wall. 
Now, why do we need three? Well, the, the reason is that we have three scales that are very important here. One is the Planck scale, so the scale that determines the strength of the gravitational interactions. So this is a very, very high scale. Another scale is the Higgs scale. That's related to the world where we live in. Okay, We, I mean, me made of protons. And another scale is the mass of the dark matter. Okay, that has to be two mega electron volt. It's much smaller than the, than the Higgs energy. So the extra dimension can be built in such a way that moving through the room requires energy. Okay, so there is a mathematical way to uh, build this kind of extra dimension. And finally, what it means is that if you really, if you could propagate in the extra dimension, and you, you want to go from one wall to another, you need to push very hard and put energy in it. Okay, so there is a wall that is, requires very little energy, two mega electron volt. That's where the, our massive gravitons live. And then if you want to move from there to us, you need to push the energy up to the Higgs energy. And if you want to go all the way to the Planck uh, brain, where the, sorry, the Planck wall, where the, uh, the standard gravitons are, then you need to push even further to much higher scales. Okay, so this is a way to sort of construct in a geometrical way, a system where these very light massive gravitons appear and they have the correct size of interactions with us because they are suppressed by the requirement of you know, pushing very hard to get to our wall. I think that's more or less all I wanted to tell you uh, today. Yeah, thank you so much for that great um, visual explanation uh, how to visualize the, the theories that that's uh, I've never heard it in that way. So uh, yeah, that was really interesting and um, clarifying. Um, please, if you have um, any questions, flash your microphones. Um, I see um, Denise joined us, Dr. Shah, Eric. Uh, yeah, and everyone in the audience also, if you have questions, please come to the stage and ask or write in the chat. Um, yeah, feel free to join us. So um, yeah, if, if Victoria. Victoria. Yes, thank you. And I, I also want to add for our guests in the audience, if yeah. anyone has, uh, yeah. oh, can you not, can you hear me? I got the red bar. Um, am I? Um, no, no, I can hear it very well. Oh, okay, cool. All right, great. Yeah, I was just um, wanting to invite friends in the audience, even if your question isn't particularly um, super grounded in science and, and you something in this talk brought up um, you know, element of interest for you, please feel free. We want this to be inclusive space and and um, encourage your questions. So, you know, yeah, raise your hands if you'd like. Otherwise, Dr. Shaw, we usually um, come to you because you've, you've come toward the end. So maybe you have a question and we can get started with you. So let, uh, let me say to Giacomo, that was a wonderful share. You know that that was a heavy topic, honestly. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> yes, thinking yes. about that and uh, how can I just make my question better? So actually my question was about the tau particle. And I was just wondering how based upon the model that you just uh, explained to us, 
and different dimension and changing the dimension. Is that possible to have a tall particle or make it, make it in that dimension or not? Sorry, uh, what particle, the tau? Yes, tau particles, light for the light. Yeah, well, no, I mean, in the, um, let's say in the, in the scenario I was talking about this extra dimension, at the end, all the particles, including the tau and all the, the muon, the electron, they're all localized on the middle wall. So together with the with the rest of the matter. But I know that in principle one could elaborate further in the model and try to think of well models where you know different particles that have different mass can be probing different extra dimensions. But I so think the minimal is... situation is just well they're all the, on the same wall. They're all part of the ordinary matter. So does it still include the proton? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, basically all the particles we know of that we we have measured directly they are on the on the middle wall it's only the gravitons that are able to probe the rest of the space that's the basic version of the model so based upon your model i mean do you have any further information about data gathering i mean i know that uh, i mean based on upon the graviton is uh, it's a possibility of I mean, uh, data gathering and uh, saving mm -hmm. the information. I was just wondering, do you have any further, I mean, explanation around that? Well, I mean, uh, in fact, because the, the fact that these particles, they couple so weakly to, to us, I mean, it's very, very hard to probe their existence. Because, you know, typically what we try to do when we propose a model with some new particles, is to produce them in, in the lab. So, I mean, here, as you know, here at CERN, I'm, they have the biggest accelerator on, in the world where colliding protons at very, very high energy. But then the coupling of these gravitons to protons are very small because well, protons are, are fairly light at the end of the day. Um, however, we are thinking with some colleagues to use colliders of some heavier particles that are proposed for, well, the far future and there might be some hope to produce gravitons at these collisions. I think besides this, unfortunately, it's very, very hard to, um, to probe these kind of models because of these very weak interactions. Do we but have was any missing another... energy? Do we have any missing energy in this model? Well, if you produce, if you produce the gravitons, they will give rise to missing energy, yes. But the thing is, it's very, very hard to produce them. In fact, well, what we are thinking about is that, you know, um, well, I, I couldn't go in too much into the technical part of that, but, you know, when you have this kind of extra dimensions, you don't have it, only one massive graviton. In fact, you have many, many of them. And the masses are, they are all uh, multiples of this, you know, MEV scale, okay? But there's an infinite, well, an almost infinite tower. That means that there will, also, there will be a huge number if you, so if you, uh, have a lot enough energy, like we have these colliders, you might be able to produce a lot of these particles, right? And some of them, they will uh, decay, they will disintegrate into photons. So the idea is that, well, you will have some missing energy, but you also have some photons coming from all these heavier massive gravitons. So those heavier guys, they are not dark matter, okay, because they decay into photons, but still you can produce them, and if we see a continuum of photons, this might be a signature of specifically this model. 
may we continue because there are so many of them with different mass that you don't see a resonance with well-defined mass for the two photons equal to the mass of the particle. Thank you. So I don't know if that clarifies. Thank you, Dr. Kachapalia. Yeah. I'm, I'm um, again, want to thank you for, for the language that you used in, in your talk because it was so fascinating and I'm getting, I wanna let you know that I'm getting messages from friends in the audience that were saying, even though they were trying to hold on that they found it really riveting. So thank you. And I, I just, I just, um, yeah, I love that feebly interacting massive particles. <laughs> um, I want to remind people up here to please flash your mics so that we can, we have lots of us or it is in a free for all and we can make sure that we get to everyone. So um, thank you, Dr. Shaw for your fascinating question. Think, so who Jamie, is next? I think Jamie please. was next. Jamie, the mic is yours. Thank you very much. Doctor, that was an amazing talk. First of all, um, oh, I was I was saying wow for all the stuff that I couldn't un uh, that I could understand, which was very little, and double wow showing all the things I still have yet to understand, which is very exciting. So I'm going to be spending a long time pulling over this to understand this. But since I've got you here, the big question when I was looking at your paper and I was reading the abstract, it said here um, you were talking about the discovery of a chiral enhancement mm -hmm. and the production cross sections of massive spin to gravitons. And I was hoping that you could please explain, because I'm a total layman here, um, I hope you could explain um, what exactly is a cross production section yeah. of a mass spin to and after that, what actually is a chiral enhancement, please? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, well, this is it's a bit of language. I mean, it's a technical language that we use in <laughs> in the paper. But okay, so the spin two is well, just refers to um, an intrinsic property of the graviton. So all gravitons they have spin two. So if I spin is basically a, a rotation of the particle around this axis. Okay, so it's just then, well, because of quantum physics, this is actually quantized. So it cannot be any number. It has to be an integer of some units okay that's that's where the two is coming from just to give a feeling the photon is spin one and the proton is spin a half okay so each particle is a spin and that's just again describing the rotation of the um of the of the particle ah, okay. but again just a graviton that's the <laughs> okay it's a, a special feature of the gravitons now regarding the cross section, this is related to uh, the production of this uh, this particle. So in, during the presentation, I was talking about the probability you know, of particles colliding and producing these massive gra gravitons, right? So when you think of a collision, you can really think of a well, collision of two objects, right? Like if you're playing pool and there are two balls that collide with each other, okay? So the cross section is literally a measure of the probability of these two to collide. So if you think of two uh, balls on the pool table, the cross-section is really just the, 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 the radius, so the, well, the surface of, of the ball, if you just look, it, look at it, okay? Because the probability to hit it is exactly equal to uh, the size of the ball, right? I mean, the bigger is the ball, the easier is to, to hit it. So the cross-section in this case is not the actual size of the particle, but it's a measure of this probability, okay? We use the same name, cross-section, okay? So as you cut the, the thing, that you look at the section in the direction of the collision, okay? 
But again, it's a, you can translate that cross-section with probability of production of these massive gravitons. And finally, the chiral announcement. Well, there's nothing but the effect I was talking about. So the fact that once the Higgs does its job and gives mass to the standard model particles, then the, the cross-section will become much larger. Okay, so we call it chiral because of technical reasons related actually to the spin, but I don't want to get into that. It's the handedness, so like left-handed versus right-handed. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. the convention, mathematically speaking, and there's some machinery that kind of works out that way. But just in general, there's like right-handed, left-handed. The fact that we can use chirality to uh, coax out some of these particles is quite exciting. Mm -hmm. A recent uh, paper that actually uh, came out, uh, I believe yesterday or, or very recently, talked about using uh, a rotation while uh, they were uh, already observing one symmetry. So they were applying two symmetry breakings, and they were able to observe the axial pigs, which is an interesting result because it's, like, I think, the first mm -hmm. time in a long time that we've discovered a particle not in the LHC or something like that. It's more like a tabletop. Um, uh, could you comment on the nature of the symmetry breaking or how perhaps applying two symmetry breakings here might, uh, or, or is that something that was already done? Because it's not clear to me, um, and, and I'm just curious from that perspective. Uh, well, I have to confess, I heard about this paper, but I didn't read it yet. So it's on top of my reading list. So I'm afraid I cannot answer okay, okay. this question because I don't know precisely what so with respect to the chirality in your in your problem, what was the nature yeah. of the trick? I guess is 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 like well, if I was asking Jamie's question, that's what I would mm -hmm. naturally assume it to be. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, in this case, like you said, I mean, the chirality is related to this right-handed, left-handed. So there are basically two different ways for the spin of the particles to rotate, okay, clockwise or under clockwise now the thing is that um, this is related to now how the Higgs works so the Higgs couples one chirality to the other so basically this means that without the Higgs the two chiralities are completely independent from each other so basically there will be two electrons one with one chirality another one with the opposite chirality the only way to give mass to electrons is to uh, fuse the two chiralities, so couple the two chiralities with each other. And that's exactly the job done by the Higgs. So when we talk about chiral announcement, it's really due to the fact that there is the Higgs end entering into the process. So the Higgs uh, flips one chirality, transforms one chirality into the other because it couples them, and this is done through the mass generation. Okay, so I hope that... Yeah, yeah, ideas. okay, so, so yeah. I guess the follow-up question okay. is, is that purely like so in my studies of quantum mechanics all of this always just seemed like mathematical machinery um mm -hmm. but how it translates to the actual interface or process or like i know spontaneous symmetry breaking is usually like the magic word for most of these things mm -hmm. but yeah. was there any sort of delay or was it rather spontaneous in the sense of uh, other observations that we make Uh, yeah, uh, sorry, I'm not sure I understand uh, the question. So, see, so what's the direct observation of this symmetry breaking? So, if we were to take like, um, yeah. So, if I'm if I'm looking at friction on the surface of a table, I can model it mm -hmm. as a as a negative uh, force coefficient. But then, yeah. when I get into the condensed matter, it's actually like teeth, and then I want to do rigid body simulation. 
but then I'm still not getting at it because actually it's the electromagnetism, the repulsion. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, you know, we keep going deeper and deeper. Um, is there a, a layer of perhaps activity that seems to be um, kind of driving all of this? Um, perhaps yeah. suggesting yeah. a new model or something like that? But that's kind of what I'm getting at. Like, uh, is see. there any evidence or are you suspicious perhaps? No, well, I mean, uh, I have my own preferences. Let me see. So, uh, in the in the experimental data, we don't know yet. So, um, uh, for for what we know, we cannot be sure what what is the dynamics behind behind the Higgs. In reality, there might be some. For example, me, I'm personally I'm working a lot on models where the Higgs is a so-called composite state. It means that it's made of fermions, so it's made of some more elementary particles. I mean, as you know, you're familiar with a proton that is made of quarks, right? So it could be very similar kind of dynamics. And this is one of, well, we have seen a symmetry breaking that is generated by the condensation of quarks. This is something that has been studied on the lab. So my suspicion is that the same might be happening with the Higgs. But unfortunately, we don't have the enough data to, to say anything about that. So we don't know if okay, it's cool. the case. Yeah, yeah. no, that, that that answers my question. I just I couldn't <laughs> okay. get it out in a in a normal mm-hmm. uh, in a normal English way. No, no, <laughs> yeah, sure. no, no, phrases, no, no. That's exactly I think what I was uh, curious about, and I think Jamie was asking a very similar question mm-hmm. about like these technical statements have like this uh, rich structure, but mm-hmm. I like hearing the uh, the um, I don't know what to call it the gossip. Of of uh, of what you might think personally, because that often drives, like you know, the suspicion of two sticks together to get the banana every once in a while. You get yeah. lucky. So this is a uh, very fascinating. So thank you, David. Uh, welcome to the stage, David. Am I the only David? That would be very rare. Yeah, I am. <laughs> Sorry, I had to take a quick look. Sorry about that. Giacomo, what mm-hmm. man? This this whole conversation takes me back to one of my most memorable memorable experiences when I was with Neil deGrasse Tyson at some private event, mm-hmm. and I had never heard about this just because I'm I'm not in the physics physics space. I'm just kind of an armchair Monday morning, you know, wannabe you know physicist type of thing. But but he said, I mean, he 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 shared kind of what was one of the common theories or popular theories is, is about a gravity leak that, that the uh, dark matter is a gravity leak possibly from a different dimension. So mm-hmm. I really, you know, I, a lot of this, uh, a lot, I really appreciate how the words you use to really help simplify it. Um, as I'm multitasking, it's still above my pay grade, quite honestly, <laughs> but, but I, can you, can you speak to, this extra dimensional rationalization, because I think that's, I try to, I, I kind of em, embrace string theory again, not as a, mm-hmm. a pro at all, but more as a kind of a couch surfing physicist wannabe to kind of explain, you know, life after death and try to have a, a grander theory of about existence, right. And things like mm-hmm. that. So, you know, the way, the way my mind has it, it currently, I kind of, I, I, I blend or integrate uh, some of these uh, theories, some of these ideas that aren't f- fully, you know, fleshed out, like string theory and things like that, to try to get a sense for this extra dimensional existence that we might have. And then the thing that kind of blows that out, I'm going to I'm going to wrap it up right here. 
the thing that kind of that I'm really intrigued with is just some kind of a conceptual um, approach to this ever expanding universe and, and, and all the stuff that you're studying with regards to 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 dark matter and things like that. So, you know, I just I just like listening to you. If you could kind of take my gobbledygook and just express whatever your thoughts might be, I'd really appreciate it and keep up the awesome work. And um, it's, it's really meaningful. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. No, I mean, the, I also find very fascinating this idea of extra dimensions. I mean, it's actually one of the first topics I've been working on when I was a student. And um, yeah, I mean, of course, string theory is a, is a very fascinating theory. The, for me, one issue is that, well, it's very, very hard to probe with experiments if that's a correct theory that describes their nature or not. And the reason is, well, is mostly, mostly because we don't have tools that are powerful enough to get to, to the energies where we should be able to see some effects. Now, hopefully this, you know, dark matter could be one relic of these extra dimensions. And I was talking about this simple, you know, two-room system, but this can be, of course, embedded into a full-string theory uh, scenario. Okay, so it's definitely part of that sort of uh, way of thinking. In fact, as you might know, uh, the idea of extra dimension came out of string theories. There's not some, well, to, to, be, to be completely honest, it's something that people thought, <clears throat> this might be surprising, back in 1905. So the first papers that talk about extra dimensions, they are very, very old. They are for more than 100 years ago. But then when people discovered string theories, then they realized that they need extra dimensions in the kind of scenario then this revived all these explorations of extra dimensions. And I think we are not done yet. So what I find very interesting is that there's a lot more to explore that we, we have seen so far. Fortunately, it's not only exploration for the mind because we, we don't have data that can allow us to uh, check if these, these ideas are realized or not. Yeah, but I think that's a testament to uh, theoretical physics in general. It's always yeah. amazing that you can take something from the imagination, uh, which is not reality as we see it in the laboratories, and make extrapolations that always kind of blew my mind. I felt like it was like a modern-day magician or wizard, that you have some secret codes or something. Um, yeah, I, I, I yeah. guess maybe a, a tangent question, one that I often ask is, you know, if students were listening to your talk, um, and they wanted to follow the work, what would you recommend to them? Because from, from my history, uh, when I started studying string theory, they said, make sure you also study simulation so you can get a job later. <laughs> so that was very good advice. Um, but in terms of uh, this kind of work, is there a book that you recommend or um, maybe there's a summary that you recently stumbled upon? So for, for people who want to dive right into this and uh, not not necessarily in the deep end, they start in the shallow end. Mm -hmm. hmm. string theory, no, not really. Um, no, I think, sorry, I don't have any, anything to recommend. No, no, I meant like for your work. So like, you, like when yeah. in my experience, the string theorist said, don't study string mm -hmm. theory, do simulations. Here, if you were like students that are working with you now, yeah. Um, are they tackling a different portion of the problem compared to what inspired you to tackle ah. it? Or like, is there something that is fascinating or annoying right now that you think uh, is, is something that uh, perhaps people should look at more? 
Um, well, yeah, I think one thing I would tell to my students is that, well, don't do string theory to begin with. <laughs> um, <laughs> I confirm that. Uh, do theoretical physics because there are a lot of open questions that, you know, we still don't know the answer to, like dark matter, like what I was talking about today. But I would also tell them, try to open your mind and see if all, what you learn to, uh, you know, studying physics can be applied to other things. Because, you know, um, I was talking to my some colleagues this morning, actually, about this. And then physics is not only about, you know, thinking about problems, uh, come up with mathematics, study experiments. It's really solving problems, you know. So that, that's what I do every day, basically. I think of a problem, I try to find the best solution for the problem. This can be done for just theoretical problems, like, you know, mathematical problems can also be done for problem, problems in, in, in the real world, let's say, that are more relevant for, for the society. Let me give you an example. When COVID started, I started working on COVID. So I used basically techniques that I've been using in theoretical physics to study particles, to also study how this COVID has been spreading. And now it's a big part of my research. And I think this is certainly much more useful directly with the society than, you know, come up with theories and versions of string theory. Of course, I mean, this is not to, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that theoretical physics is, is not useful. In fact, one thing that we should always remember is that, you know, I come up with a theory, experimentalists come up with the experiment to probe these theories. And this also implies a huge technological advancement for the whole society not only for, you know, fundamental science. So there are direct benefits coming from the, the fact that we try to push the boundary of technology, right? Because we need to answer, find an answer to these questions in the experiments. But there are also ideas that can be used in other fields. So there is a double benefit, right? And I think it's the time we start doing both. That's what I would tell my students. Yeah, that's awesome. That's very similar to the kind of advice that I got uh, that the, the mathematics of string theory, very useful. You can do lots of stuff. And yeah, now I yeah. work in biophysics. And again, oh, I fantastic. also work in, uh, in coronavirus rapid detection with the sensor. That's kind of uh, my, my little startup here. And it was because my professors pushed me to also have these other skills in addition to the fancy mathematics that comes with particle physics. So uh, uh, yeah. definitely, uh, definitely nice to hear that. Yeah, thank you, Eric. But also... You know, we are here at the Science Society and it's all about curiosity. So I, I don't, I'm not sure, but I don't like the idea that science has to have a pur purpose other than curiosity. Um, applied sciences are not necessarily good science. Good science is good science. And what comes no, no, out but, of it. Uh, sorry, I mean, <laughs> just to clarify, I mean, it's no. not a purpose. It's really. It's part of the curiosity, you know, when I was mentioning some work I've been doing in on, on COVID, it all started from curiosity. We were looking at this data coming in, the number of infections, and the question was, well, why are they behaving like this? And why do they look so familiar? So it all started from curiosity. And then, well, there are also uh, some results that can be beneficial for the society. It's a side product which is also very important. Oh, yeah. I so it all to... starts with curiosity. Yeah. I totally agree with you. No, I, I, didn't, I didn't want to um, contradict um, mm. what you're saying. I just wanted to 
remind that it's really hard to give people advice what they should do with yeah, their yeah. life. <laughs> May I? I don't think oh, sorry, Katarina, sorry. I, I don't think anyone really can. So um, I, I like that you follow your curiosity and yeah. I think, they, you know, staying with that message is, is pretty, you know, because that we never know where to lead. So um, I think, yeah. So um, I would like to interject here because I was I, this was going through my mind as well. I'm looking back at I took notes. I always take notes at what you had said. And um, Dr. Kachapalia, you were talking about at, at uni, you were so interested in experimental physics and you loved looking through particles. And then from that, you you wanted to try to ask questions that use the imagination. And so mm -hmm. I was I was thinking again, we maybe we just have to walk this path that's guided by our curiosity, yeah. you know, and not by the intellect. And, and this is this is what it sounded like to me had been your motivation. Yeah, no, definitely. It has always been my motivation. Exactly. You read, you read it correctly. Speaking of curiosity, can I throw in another question, please? Because there was something I was hoping um, some more understanding about. Is that okay, Doctor? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Um, um, you were discussing this idea of um, the the four dimensions, right? And you said that like, um, mm -hmm. you imagine like a, an, like a, a uh, was it like a, a, a floor space, yeah, with mm -hmm. a wall in the middle. Yeah. Um, and you said, is it a, a are we like the flies where our limit is the wall, right? Mm -hmm. or, or yeah. Did you say we lived in the wall or we were one half of the space? Oh, I, I wasn't sure if I understood that part. Uh, no, no, I mean, the, in the picture, I was really thinking that we, I mean, the particles we are made of are really confined on the wall. Ah, okay, okay. So yeah, and, just stuck on the wall. <laughs> right, right. So, and so the whole four space then, this is because, um, these particles, right, the gravitons and stuff, gravity uh, exists mm -hmm. in the whole floor space, but we can't access yeah. the whole area. Um, is this, uh, is, is this, do you think the dark matter then is, uh, please forgive me if I'm asking a dumb question, so no. I'm difficult to get my head around dark matter, eh? <laughs> it's a weird concept for me. Is dark matter what's existing in that other wall space that we can't reach? Yeah, well, that's a possibility. In fact, I mean, the, the model I've been studying more or less follow, falls into, into that category. So there are really particles that are not completely stuck on the wall, but they need to live very close to the wall. That's what we say. So they are nearly localized. That's more technical words. Right. That means that somehow it's very painful for them to reach the wall where we live. That justifies why interact so rarely with uh, with the ordinary matter right and this okay, is so definitely yeah and and mm -hmm. this is then saying that the particles that are um that, that are coming through to us from the other room mm -hmm. uh is, is this like the matter that we share with dark matter but it, uh, but it isn't dark matter but it's particles that we share with them uh, no, it's, it's not really shared. It's, it is the actual dark matter. So the thing is, the dark matter can go through the wall where we live and interact with us, but this is very, very rare. So it's really a direct interaction between these particles. So um, I don't know if there is, a, if there is a, a, 
if it's a uh, correct way to imagine, but you can think of these particles as just floating in, in the room and very rarely they hit the wall, right? And that's where we are, on the wall. <laughs> Thank you very much for indulging me, Doctor. <laughs> no, you're very welcome. All right, flash of mics. Who is next? Uh, yeah, I, I would like to ask um, a question about um, when, um, you, you know, when it was um, introduced that you think, or the theory basically explores if um, the um, dark matter was basically mostly produced during the very early stages of mm -hmm. uh, the Big Bang. Um, so, and the reason is, uh, can you can you explain for me again what what why exactly only then or do you expect that there is still uh, some dark matter being produced maybe in in massive black holes um or or maybe not yeah well i think the key there is the density so you know as the dark matter is produced by particles colliding with each other Okay, and then because of this cross-section, I was mentioning the, the probability to produce the, the dark matter. Uh, the universe was very dense, very close to the Big Bang. And then because of the expansion, the density has been dropping a lot. And so the probability that two particles find each other in the universe is much smaller today than it was back, you know, very close to the Big Bang. And that's the main reason why the production is mostly happening very in in the very, very few fractions of seconds of the of the life of the universe. Now, you are right that there are dense places today in the, uh, well, in, out there in the space, uh, like black holes. But the problem is that black holes, they are so dense <laughs> that nothing can escape them. So even if, if say, that dark matter is produced inside the black hole, it will never come out of it. So at the end, we... It is as if it's not produced. Okay, there are other dense objects, but they're very few again. So, so um, sorry for asking this question, but mm -hmm. um, is there any point in time that also a black hole would die, basically, and transform into something else, or is is there no such? Thing, basically I'm sorry for this question well no no absolutely uh, as far as we know uh, no so they they would just they will always be there oh wow. really? is, the big is that the only <laughs> only thing that lasts forever that's really funny uh, <laughs> yeah well if the universe lasts forever then they will too but <laughs> yeah yeah I mean you know there is this theory the, the big crunch where the, yeah yeah that's but, so interesting yeah. because so, yeah. mm -hmm. sure. you know yeah. you know religions come up with heaven and things like that but the actual endless thing that we actually know <laughs> of is a black hole i think that's yeah. i'm sorry that's very funny to me Speaking of that, I'd actually like to ask um, about what I saw in your paper, primordial black holes, which sounds mm -hmm. so awesome. Um, and, and is that like, it did say that you, there's a lot of the physics you don't understand about them or something. Please correct me 
at any point. Um, mm -hmm. But is it is it that the theory behind primordial black holes is that they weren't created by the same way in the same way that we understand black holes to be made now, and mm -hmm. that that's what might be created by a a weaker force or something. Um, can you please explain any, mm -hmm. anything you can about that, please? Yeah, no, indeed. I mean, uh, let me say it in this way. The, the different mechanism is that, you know, black holes now, I mean, the ones that we, we think that they come from, well, matter that collapsed. So maybe stars that, you know, at the end of the revolution, they, they became so dense and heavy that they just collapsed into, into black hole. So, but basically it's matter that, you know, becomes so dense that creates a black hole. For the primordial black holes, the difference is that, well, they're still made by the same physics, let's say, but they're not made by actual particles. They're made by so-called uh, quantum fluctuations. Um, so to give you a feeling is the fact that, you know, um, in quantum physics, just empty space is not empty. So it's just made by, uh, well, production of particles that are produced and disappear continuously, okay? So those are what we call quantum fluctuations. Now the thing is that if the universe expands very fast, these quantum fluctuations get basically frozen and expand, so become huge in, in, in the universe, okay? And this is what is thought as the possible origin of these black holes. Because they, you know, their fluctuations, they might become so big that at the end, the density of energy contained in them becomes so big that they collapse into black hole. So somehow they're not real particles that do that. It's some quantum weird stuff <laughs> that creates the, the, these black holes. That is so incredibly cool. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there's a lot of it that we don't understand then that you're saying, right? Yeah. This, this is just a, th like a, a theory at the moment, a, like a, a vague sort of idea at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, there's this, this a problem that it's, I mean, it's, a, it's an idea, but it's very hard to really calculate things very precisely or know exactly what's happening. So, right. And was this why you weren't discounting this as, as a possible candidate for uh, what you're talking about? But... Well, no. I mean, I wouldn't discard it, but, you know, um, it's a bit hard to believe in, well, believe, uh, to, to think that this is a viable candidate before we can be sure, you know, to be able to calculate how many of these black holes are produced and and if the they are produced enough to give the 25% of the mass that I was talking about. Right, we need to know better how it works to know if it's Yeah, I think we, know, really we need viable. a lot of progress right. in the theoretical understanding of the process before we can we can be sure. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Primordial black holes, so cool. Okay, thank you, Doctor. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's still a viable possibility. We shouldn't put it off the table. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, we talked a little bit over an hour. So um, if anyone has some last questions, um, please flash your microphones. Victoria, did you want to say something? Um, thank you. I, I'm sorry. I don't know if Gilbert had had a chance yet to ask a question. And maybe I just missed my screen at that time. So I was just offering it to you, Gilbert. Oh, thank you very much. Um, 
I came a bit late, so um, I don't have any questions. I was just listening in. Always oh, so happy to have you here. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming. Thank you, Doctor. Hi, Alex. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> yes. Hello. Hello, Katerina. I came in a bit late too, and I have a quick question. Yes, please go ahead. Mm, yeah. We we aren't hearing you. Are you able to unmic, Alex? Ah, sorry, sorry about that. Yes. Oh, thank you, Giacomo. Very interesting subject. Are you no, able to propose any new experiments or an experiment to test your theory? Um, yeah, like I was mentioning briefly, uh, we are still working the details, so we're I'm not sure yet if we can really work. But the idea would be to build a collider using some heavier particles, for example, muons. I think this is a big technological challenge, but it might lead to enough production of these new gravitons that, that can be actually detected. But this is really work in progress, so we we are trying to estimate if you know this is a viable possibility or not. And and how would you actually detect them? Like, what sort of a detector would you need? Well, actually, detector is well just a standard detector that is being used also today. Because what what we need to detect is either the fact that you produce particles that then they escape because well they are like dark matter, so you don't detect them. So you need to detect all the all the rest, right, to see the missing these missing particles, or some heavier graviton that then decay into photons. So we need a detector that can detect photons very efficiently, even photons with a very small, very small energy. But the problem is really be able to collide muons. That's the, that's the hard part. I see. And yeah. is there any possibility to adapt the LHC to do that? No, I'm, I'm afraid not. And in fact, the LHC is a collider of very, very light particles. So unfortunately, it will not do the job for us because it collides quarks and gluons that are basically massless. So would the place to make those kind of observations just be uh, like from cosmic rays, I guess? Uh, yeah, yeah, there might be something there too. And it's something we, we are starting to explore right now, if there is any way to see them indirectly or directly well, from, from cosmic rays. But the, the problem is that, again, the couplings are so small that at the end it's very, very hard to, to produce them. It's a big challenge. Can I also ask you, um, I don't know if this is like a basic physics question that I, I haven't mm -hmm. touched on yet, but the electroweak um, symmetry, uh, oh, sorry, I'm trying to get the name of it here. I've, I've wrote it down. Um, Mm -hmm. um, the uh, the electroweak symmetry breaking scale. Mm -hmm. Can can you explain what what is that exactly? That's really interesting. Yeah, well, that's the that's the scale where the Higgs does his job. That's how I talked uh, described it during the talk. Because in fact, I mean, uh, 
the Higgs is the particle that gives mass, right? But the, the thing is that, is that it gives mass by breaking a symmetry, which is precisely the electroweak symmetry. So this is related to the issue of chirality that we touched upon before. So the fact is that uh, the, well, the left-handed one chirality of the standard model particles coupled to the electroweak particles, the other one doesn't. So the only way to connect the two is to break this electroweak symmetry. I'm simplifying oh. a bit, but that's the that's the essence. Oh no, no, actually, sorry, that's really helpful. Sorry if I didn't pick up mm. on that in, in the talk no, no. before. But this this needs this definitely needs me to read a lot more of it. This is actually quite fascinating. Yeah, yeah thank you. No, I mean, we did, I didn't mention electroweak, so it's a good question you asked. They're all connected at the end. <laughs> Thank you so much. This is amazing. This is so exciting. This is amazing. Thank you. Um, I see that um, Nope in the audience has a question, but I'm having trouble to bring you. Oh, now it worked. Hi, how are you? Welcome to the stage. Please ask your question. Yeah, thanks. Uh, what an awesome look was. I just want to ask, can graviton be considered a fundamental particle? Um, fundamental? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can think of it as a fundamental particle. I mean, if you think about this extra dimensional scenario, then definitely it is. Um, of course, one can also think of it as a composite particle. I mean, in that case, it will be a bit like, well, a glue ball or some something made of some other particles. This is a this is definitely another possibility. I think probably been explored in, in, in the literature. So both ways is, is viable. I hope that answered the question. Yes, thanks. Okay, thanks. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. I know we've taken up a little bit more of your time, you know, more than That's an okay. hour. So I was very happy of the many questions. That's great. Yeah, and so, um, yeah, um, we are very thankful that you made the time and that you came and presented this work. It's um, such a fundamental questions that you're answering with your work. So it's always so interesting to hear where we come from, how our universe was built and um, I feel like we have to learn so much more about it in the general public. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's really important work and, and thank you for sharing it with us. Um, I'm personally hoping you come back sometime um, in the near future, Doctor, because I'm going to read through all this and have lots more questions for you. There's just so much <laughs> that I don't understand, but I, I can tell this is mind-blowing stuff. So I really, really hope I get a chance to speak to you again. Uh, we, we all do. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, definitely. Looking forward to it. Yes, thank you, Dr. Kashyapalia. I hope that's your take-home message, that, that you came and found a very receptive and extremely enthusiastic audience. So, yeah, definitely. Lots of <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks to you all for, you know, stay, staying with me for so long. It was fun. Yeah. And, um, yeah, you're welcome anytime to come and thank you everyone for coming and asking questions and for feel, making our guest speaker feel welcome and um 
yeah, I hope we'll uh, hear you again sometime, not see you. Uh, <laughs> and um, yeah, this was a wonderful discussion. Thank you, everyone. And of course, a special thanks to you, Giacomo. So yeah, if you like discussions like this, follow the club. Um, maybe we get the chance to, to talk about um, these topics um, again. Uh, we have later in the evening Dr. Moses talking about um, and the BCI work where um, uh, it decoded speech and paralyzed uh, people. And um, was I gone for a second? I feel like... Uh, no, no, no. no. Oh, yeah, the room was gone for a second for me. That's my... And, um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Lately, the app is kind of good. Uh, yeah, so feel free to come back. Follow the club. Follow Dr. Um, Giacomo. Um, and um, thank you, everyone. I'll close the room in. Three, two... And Doctor, we wish you all the funding and all oh, the best. Right. No, it was really great. I'll definitely follow the activities for this club. Please, please do. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, okay. okay. Bye, everybody. Have a good day, everyone. Bye. Have a good day, everyone. Bye. Take care, bye -bye. doctor. Thank you. Bye bye.